Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Have you ever noticed that everything a baby does is cute? Ever thought about that? Like you see a baby and they smile and you're like, oh, what an amazing smile. Nobody was running up to a 40-year-old guy in the lobby today going, how do you do that? How'd you do that smile thing when you're coming in here? Babies go walking across the room and they fall down. And they're like, oh, that's so cute. They're trying to walk. No one got applause for walking into the lobby today. Hey, look at you. Look at that. How do you do that? One foot in front of the other. It's amazing. And I've always thought, you know, little kids are cute. But I forgot what little kids were like. And I was hanging out with a, a couple the other day. My wife and I and our kids went over to their house. And uh, they've got toddler, baby age kids. And when we left, I just looked at Shannon and I said, I forgot. I forgot how much work it is just to keep them alive. Like chasing them around so they don't hurt anybody. And I was telling my friend about it afterwards. I had been at his house. Like I was worn out just watching you take care of your kids. Like it was tiring me out in the process. And a couple weeks later, I got on a plane with my family, and our, our kids had not flown very much, uh, and I tried to give them instructions on what this was like, and the main thing I said was, do not go to the bathroom on the plane. Okay, the bathrooms on the plane are nasty if you haven't been in there, and uh, I do not know how in the world they're doing uh, COVID protocol cleanings in the bathrooms, but I don't trust that that's taking place. I think they're, I said to my kids, like, if you did have to go to the bathroom, don't touch anything. Wash your hands. It's a good habit, but like, don't touch anything in there, and it's super small. So guess what happens? <laughs> We're on the plane, we get right to cruising altitude. Not two seconds after we're at cruising altitude, our nine-year-old daughter looks at my wife and I and says, I've got to go to the bathroom. Of course you do, is what I'm thinking at that moment. And we're sitting pretty close to the back of the plane, and I didn't think to myself, and call me a negligent father, but I didn't think I needed to say, there's two doors back there. One of them goes to the bathroom. The other one will kill us all, okay? And so I just sat there. I said, she's going to go back to the bathroom. My wife's watching her. I'm enjoying my luxurious Cheez-Its fun-sized snack that I'm stuffing underneath my mask as I'm sitting there on the plane waiting for this to be over. And my wife's watching the nine-year-old the whole time, and then she just grabs my arm. She goes, she's going to the wrong door. It's like, what? And I pull my seatbelt off, ran to the back. I grab her. I was like, what are you doing? You go to that door. Go put her in the bathroom. And then I just stood there and visualized what would have happened had she pulled the other lever on the other door at 30,000 feet. Have you ever done that? Crisis is averted, but you still imagine in your mind. And so I'm looking at the door, and I'm thinking to myself, all the people being sucked out of the back of the plane. When she gets out of the bathroom, we take her back to her seat and sit down. And, and legend has it, there's a day and a time that your kids grow to the age where you don't have to say things like, don't kill everybody. We're going to protect you from everything. And some of you are parents of young kids, and my, my just tribute to you this morning. Thank you for those of you who've got them here in person. What a miraculous thing you've done. Uh, congratulations. And that they're alive, whether you're at home or wherever you're at, uh, it's just incredible. But they need, they're so needy. They even need you to burp them. Think about that. How needy do you have to… Like if some 40-year-old guy walks up to you after the service and says, can you burp me? <laughs> I don't care if you've been going to church here for 10 years, you'd be like, people at that church are weird. What are you doing? But yet at church every week, there's people that come that have been Christians for a long period of time, and they, they act so immature. See, immaturity is cute when you're a baby. It's not cute when you're an adult. Immaturity is cute when it's these little things, but it's not cute when it's dangerous, like airplanes or 
falling off of a cliff or all the things that little kids can do, tangle themselves up, come up with things you couldn't even imagine. If you've ever been around a new believer, the Bible says that when you're a new believer that you're born again. So you should be a baby in Christ. And, and that's exciting. And, and it's fun to be around them. But they're messy. And they believe all kinds of crazy stuff. Have you ever been around somebody who's been a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years where they're still like a new believer? Everywhere they go, they make a mess. In relationships, and churches, everywhere they go. They don't know how to feed themselves. They don't know how to grow. They're not making any disciples. They don't know how to reproduce. And that's not cute. And so I want to ask you a question today, but if you're a new believer, it's not accusatory in any way. If you've been a believer for 20 or 30 years and you're still like a new believer, then hopefully you'll be convicted and spurred on to grow. But the question is simply this, are you mature in Christ? And how do you know the answer to that? Well, that's what our passage of Scripture is going to show us today. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. We're going to talk about the mystery of maturity. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24, picking, off, picking up where we left off last week. Uh, if you've been with us, we've been walking through verse by verse through Colossians. And, and in chapter 1, the very beginning, we looked at this prayer for transformation because Jesus changes everything. And Paul's praying, and he's praying for believers so that we would know God's will. Why? Why do we need to know God's will? Well, it says in chapter 1, the beginning, that you would walk worthy of the Lord. Well, who's the Lord? Well, what is He like? And, and then it says that He's the one that's transferred you from a kingdom of darkness. So you can look at our world and think, how can someone think that? Because people are be believing stuff that's literally ri just ridiculously ruining their own lives. But they're in darkness. Of course they're going to. They actually think what they're doing is right. And you, if you've trusted Christ, have been transferred from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His Son, Jesus. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Well, that's what we looked at last week. And we saw that He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the sustainer of all of creation. He's the head of the church, His body. He is the reconciler of all things. He's the firstborn from the dead. He is your only hope of salvation. He is worthy of your faith, enduring through your entire life. He's the one that's going to make you, listen, you, you, you know you, holy before His Father, blameless, above reproach, the passage said. That means the accuser can't bring any accusations against you. They're going to stick because Jesus dealt with them at the cross. Amen? And so what do we do now? Well, that's what our passage today answers. Look at it. It says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, Now, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church. We've already seen that analogy of which I became a minister, so he's talking about his ministry here, according to the stewardship, stewardship is when you've been entrusted with something, from God that was given to me for you, to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, that's those who place their faith in Jesus, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's the mystery. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so Paul here says the goal is everyone, everyone not just in the church, everyone not just uh, conforming to some behavior modification, everyone not just voting the same way, thinking this, everyone will be mature in Christ, that they'd be transferred from that kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His Son. They'd know who Christ is. They'd grow in Christ so then they could reproduce in Christ that everyone would be mature. And what he uses in the passage to teach it is his ministry as a model. 
And so the goal is maturity. The model is his ministry. Here's what you need to know. Everybody who's maturing Christ has a ministry. Okay, something we've set up in the American church. It's a little bit weird. Like the professionals do ministry. The people on stage preaching do ministry or singing songs or going on the mission field. And like everybody else's job is just to make money to pay those people so they can do ministry. That is not at all what the Bible says, just so you know. The Bible actually teaches Ephesians chapter 4 that those people that are professionals like that, the pastors and teachers and elders and evangelists, they're supposed to equip the body, everybody, for their ministry. And so if you're maturing Christ, kind of a, an underlying presupposition of this passage of Scripture is that you have a ministry. That doesn't necessarily mean you need to start some 501c3 organization in our community, maybe, but you have a ministry where you work, where you live. God's put you there specifically in those spots with your neighbors, with your friends, with your kids, with your parents, all those people. So that you would have a ministry. And if you have a mature ministry, here's what it looks like. And so what I'm going to do as we walk through this passage today is I'm just going to ask you some diagnostic questions. And so you can ask those questions yourself. I don't know the answer. You know the answer. You can talk to your small group about it. Talk to the people you're at church with today about it. Talk to the Holy Spirit about it. But the first question is simply this. They're all based on the passage. Can you rejoice in your sufferings? Can you rejoice in your sufferings? Because if you look at verse 24, it says here, now I rejoice, he's using his ministry as a model, now I rejoice in my sufferings, in the interesting phrase, for your sake. Now what's he talking about here? Let me first say what Paul is not talking about in this passage. He's not saying some like twisted view of suffering, like he's seeking it out, like he wants pain in his life, but he knows that suffering is part of life. And we all know this if you, if you read the Bible, that it's going to be part of your life as a follower of Jesus. In fact, the Bible warns you, if you don't experience persecution, you're not doing this Christian thing right. It says, woe to you, Luke chapter 6, woe to you, Jesus speaking, cursing on you, if everybody thinks you're awesome. That's my paraphrase. The way that Jesus says it is, woe to you if all men speak well of you, because that's how they spoke about the false prophets. And so if you're presenting Christ on a regular basis, you're living out your faith, then you're going to experience persecution. There's promises of that by Jesus. They're not the promises most of us claim. Like you don't go to somebody and be like, you know, you need to believe this promise. John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. The Bible says that. I bet it's nobody's favorite verse. Maybe the next part says, take heart, I've overcome the world. But don't miss the first part. There's going to be trouble. Paul tells Timothy, a young pastor, 2 Timothy, he says this. He says, if you want to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all. Not just all in China or all in Iraq. All. Even here in America. Who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So suffering is part of life. Everyone here has suffered. And before I dive into this question more of can you rejoice in your suffering, let me just, just pause and acknowledge these past 10 to 12 months have been really tough on some of us. Some of you here have experienced significant losses, loved ones, spouses, kids. I've done some unique funerals over these past 10 to 12 months, some online. Some people have postponed, still haven't had a funeral, had their spouse or different people have died a, long, a while ago now. I did one funeral where I was standing at the graveside just with the family, and everybody who came to support the family just drove by in cars. A unique, a unique time, which adds to the suffering. Some of you are struggling with your kids. 
No, nobody's kids, if, let me just say this to parents, nobody's kids were equipped for what happened uh, about a year ago with this pandemic and all the isolation and shutdown and schools closing, all that stuff. Nobody's kids were prepared for that. Some of your kids are not loving Jesus and that struggle, that's a suffering. We're dealing with suicide way more than ever before, people attempting or thinking about or talking about. And so I don't want to rush past uh, this question here and then misportray what Paul's talking about or what I'm trying to communicate to you this morning. I just want to acknowledge, I know there's some significant suffering. Some of you experienced losses, some loss of job, loss of graduation, like vacation, all kinds of stuff has happened that you've missed out on. I get that. And so when we talk about rejoicing and suffering, I don't, I don't think Paul's saying, you know, your spouse died. All right, bring it on. I want more of that. That's awesome. It's not what's being said here. What I believe is being said here, it comes from some of these other phrases where he talks about for your sake and for the church, and I want everyone to be mature in Christ as he's looking at why. Why is this happening? And we've done whole series on why before. Why does suffering happen? You can go to John 9 for the glory of God and look at spiritual battle and Job and go to Ephesians 6 and all the things that are taking place. And there's lots of big reasons why suffering happens in this world, sometimes just because of sin. But what Paul's looking at is through the filter of his ministry, why for the sake of ministry is suffering coming into my life? And he's so mature in his faith, he's saying, I'll suffer so that other people can grow in Christ. That's maturity. How much do you want the, the people in this church to grow, the people in the body of Christ to grow in their faith? Not just you individually, but other people. And then you would then experience suffering. He's saying, I suffer because of that. See, he knows there's suffering in this world. Paul's a guy, he prays. His heart's cry prayer. We don't have time to dig into it, but it's in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians 3, he says, at one time, my life was all about me. My life was all about building up my resume. I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be the, the top of the, the, the corporate ladder of religion at the time. He goes through all this stuff. He writes his resume, and then he says, that's a bunch of rubbish. So I just want to know Christ. I want to be found in Christ. And then his heart's cry prayer, Philippians 3.10. I think we got that verse and put it on the screen. It says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then the last part, the fellowship of his sufferings. Like, think about what that phrase means. The fellowship of his, like, to know Christ, awesome. Power of his resurrection, yeah, victory over sin. View the world the way that God views the world, like, incredible. It's temporary. Any of this stuff that happens here is momentary and light anyways, in light of eternity and an eternal glory. But that last phrase, to share in the sufferings of Christ. And then take much reflection to then think about the sufferings of Christ, to be mocked beard pulled out, thorn crown on his head, and then to be mocked while he's naked. Do you want to be mocked for Jesus? I don't think anybody wants to be mocked, but if being mocked for Jesus means that I know Jesus more, Paul's saying, I want that. It's the only way that I can go deep in my relationship with Jesus, then I, I want that. To be abandoned, abandoned by his most vocal supporter, Peter, abandoned by all of his friends. I think anybody wants to be losing relationships. Many of you have lost relationships, though, some because of your faith. It's a form of persecution. If it makes you know Jesus more, would you want that? Or what about getting to the place where he's on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of you might not want to say it out loud in this room, but you've been in a dark place before. We've wondered, where are you, God? Have you left too? Would you, would you want to go there? And some of you, you've been there, and you might even be able to acknowledge and say, say in some of those darkest moments is when you've gone deepest with Jesus. And Paul's going, if I'll go to those dark moments if it'll take me deep with Jesus. And so he's got that heart, but that's not what this passage is about. 
That's not what Colossians chapter 1 is about. Colossians chapter 1 is about suffering not for his own maturity, it's for the sake of other people's maturity. See, a lot of times in the American church, we're so individualistic, we miss this. Look at the passage with me, just verses 24 and 25 again, and see how much of it's about other people. It says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the Word of God fully known. And so Paul's saying, the sufferings that are happening in my life, they're not even about me, they're to put Jesus Christ on display. Before we can dive into that, though, did you see there's a pretty tough part of this passage I don't want to just read past. It says in verse 24, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body that is the church. If I got up here and I just started off today and I said, you know there's stuff lacking in Jesus' afflictions? Some of you might have laughed. People would be upset. It sounds anti-biblical. Like, what is lacking in, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? I remember when I first was challenged with this verse, I was talking to a friend of mine who had converted to Catholicism. And the official position of the Catholic Church, I'm not saying all Catholics believe this, it's like a billion Catholics, so it's very diverse. The official position of the Catholic Church is, uh, it's G- you trust Jesus as your Savior plus the works that you do. And there's a list of works that you have to do, um, taking communion regularly and being baptized in the church and all those types of things. And so I was talking to him and I said, you realize that that's not salvation. So that's not what the, the Bible teaches. I said, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you're saved by grace, through faith, not of works, or does anyone boast? You add something to the cross, now you're not trusting in the cross. I said, you're not saved, is what I was talking to him about. I said, I'm fearful for your eternal destiny. And he said, well, that's fine, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, what do you do with Colossians 1, 24? I was like, I don't know Colossians 1, 24. What are you talking about? Colossians 1, 24, what does that say? He says, we've got to fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. I didn't know what to do with that. So you know what I did? I started reading Bible commentaries. That'll mess you up. <laughs> There's like a hundred explanations in there, and they're all really smart guys, and they're saying all this stuff, and like some of it sounds biblical, and some of it doesn't, and I'm going, what in the world does, is being said here? What's lacking in Christ's afflictions? But you know what I've taught you? Almost every sermon, I tell you, if something's tough, look at the context. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. What's the context? Well, we just read last week, verse 20. Go back to verse 20 with me. It says in verse 20, talking about Jesus, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, how? By the blood of His cross. So it's not making peace by the blood of His cross plus your suffering. It's not making peace by the blood of His cross plus your good works. So what Paul's talking about in 124 can't be your salvation because he's already said your salvation is through the cross. It's through the blood of His cross alone. So what is he talking about when he says there's something, because he does say there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church and so for the sake of these other people. And what I believe, and there's a lot of views on this to be really clear, but what I believe that he's talking about is that for the sake of the church, it's not known by everybody what Jesus suffered. Not everybody's seen or experienced the cross. And so you can't take everybody back in time, 2,000 years, but what God can do is put His Son on display through your suffering as a mature follower of Christ, that you then spread the suffering of Christ, what He did on the cross, by put, through your suffering, how you suffer, you point people to Christ. John Piper, I think, says it well in a sermon that he preached, kind of a long quote, we'll put it up on the screen, but he says this, after walking through Colossians 1 uh, with his folks and his church, he says, 
I think the context that we just looked at suggests that Paul's sufferings fill up Christ not by adding anything to their worth, but by extending them to the people they're meant to bless. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not that they are deficient in worth or merit, as though they could not sufficiently cover the sins of all who believe. What is lacking is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions are not known in the world. They're still a mystery, hidden to most peoples. And God's intention is that the mystery be revealed, extended to all the Gentiles. That's the context here. It's everybody who's not Jewish. So the afflictions are lacking in the sense that they are not seen and known among the nations. They must be carried by ministers of the Word. And those who… That's you and me, by the way. It's not just preachers. It's all of us. And those ministers of the Word fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by extending them to others. It's a lot of words. I like how the Radical blog, which is uh, David Platt's blog, says it. They say it a lot more succinctly. He says this. He says, Christ suffered to accomplish salvation. We suffer to spread salvation. That's what Piper was saying, if you put all of his words really succinctly. That what Paul's saying in this passage when he talks about, uh, for your sake, for the sake of his body, for the sake of the church, for you to make known the Word of God, fully known. When he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and so that you would know Christ more. Not so that you look at Paul's sufferings and be like, man, that guy suffered more than me. At least somebody's got it worse than me. Not so you can be like, well, he made it through. Maybe I can make it through. Like, all those things aren't bad. Just going, look at how you can see Christ through the way that he's suffering as a mature believer in his ministry, actually doing that for the sake of other people growing. Can you rejoice in your sufferings? I listened to a podcast this week uh, by a friend of mine, actually, Jenny Allen. I don't know if some of you have read some of her books. Um, she's got one book made for this, and she was talking to a lady and her podcast who was from Baylor uh, University, had graduated from Baylor, and was now 32 years old and had her third round of cancer that she was going through. She found out her first round of cancer uh, while she was a senior at Baylor, 21 years old, getting ready to graduate, had uh, ocular cancer and eye cancer, and uh, through radiation and different treatments was able to, to make it through that cancer. About seven years later, she was about to get married, and eight weeks before her wedding, uh, found out that the cancer had come back. Her greatest fear was that she would lose her eye, and she did. You think about what your greatest fear is and if it happened. And in the podcast, when she was being interviewed, she said, yeah, when most women were getting ready for their, their wedding dress fitting, I was getting my eye fitted so that I could get a new glass eye. But she said, but then after that, I felt like, well, all right, now that cancer's over with, I can move on with my life. Now I can start really living my life. And she got married. They had a baby right away um, and then found out uh, the third round of cancer had come. And she was told it was terminal. It was not just in her eye anymore. It was in her bones and in her liver and all throughout her body. And she had just two weeks earlier been reading Jenny Allen's book, uh, Made for This. And in that book, she challenges people to say, well, God, whatever you want for me, that's what I want for me. So she said, I was praying that, and then I found this out, and I didn't want what God wanted. She talked about the struggle of that. She's excited to die because she wants to be with Jesus. She's not excited about leaving her two-and-a-half-year-old here, not excited about leaving her husband here. And so she was talking through that. And then she said, I started this website, and some of you have seen this before for people that are struggling, uh, called Caring Bridge website, and just really to update people on how I was doing and when my appointments were so they could pray for me. And she said, but then I started getting all these people writing me back and saying, the things that you're going through is, and the way that you're going through it is changing my life. It even inspired me. And then she said, through tears, still, you know, losing her daughter, but she said, I said to God, if, if this is what you want in order to impact these people, I'm a willing vessel. That's what I believe that Paul's talking about here. 
in this passage. It's not, hey, I really want to suffer. That'd be amazing to suffer. God, could you bring some more suffering into my life? Like, that's not, I think, what he means by rejoicing. But I think he means when the rejoicing comes, you realize there's a bigger purpose in this suffering that happens. And so when the suffering comes, I can rejoice because I know you're accomplishing something. It's to further the ministry that you've given me, which is to present more and more people mature in Christ for their maturity. Can you rejoice in your suffering? Not only can you rejoice in your suffering, but do you repeat the gospel regularly? Do you repeat the gospel regularly? to yourself, to other people, to non-believers, to believers. Look at the next part of this passage. We'll read verse, from verse 24 to give us the full context, but we haven't really talked about verses 27 and 28 yet. Look at it. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of His body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship, something entrusted to me from God that was given to me for you to make known the Word of God fully known, the mystery, interesting word, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed, people now know the answer, to, the, to, to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of, his, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so, a couple times in this passage, he talks about uh, this mystery. His ministry's got this mystery to it. And I think most of us are familiar with mysteries. Maybe you watch mystery movies or read mystery novels or, you know, there's kind of there's the whodunit board games and, and there's real mysteries that happen in life. I remember the first time I went to the Grassy Knoll. I, went, I was living in Dallas, Texas, and went to the Grassy Knoll where JFK was shot. I don't know anybody here that's watched any of those movies or seen any of the theories of when and who and how JFK. I remember when I was a little kid, they taught us the president had been shot because a guy that hated the president shot him, Lee Harvey Oswald. And I went to the museum at the, in Dallas, and that's what they teach there. And then I walk outside, and there's like a dozen people selling magazines, and none of them are teaching that, just so you know. They're all talking about, no, the CIA cover-up, and there was a guy over here, look at these pictures that they don't want to show you in the museum, and I bet you they didn't tell you this in school, and see the angle that the bullets went in, and the gory pictures, and it's like, ah, like I don't even want to be here, and they're telling you all this stuff, and here's what I know after going to the grassy knoll. He got shot. <laughs> Who did it? I don't know. It's a mystery. Or do you remember, uh, I was talking, we talk sometimes about how does this happen in this day and age? How do these things take place and then this couldn't happen? Somebody's got to be controlling these things. We lost an airplane. Do you remember that? Malaysia Flight 370 had like 200 and some people on it. A Boeing 777. How do you lose an airplane? Sometimes I can't find my keys. How do you lose an airplane? It's a mystery. But then he says here in this passage, not only mystery and mystery language, but he talks about the riches of Christ. Interesting language. To them, God chose, verse 27, to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. The rich, there's a riches mystery. It got me thinking about treasure hunting. And so, for some reason in my study this week, I spent way more time than I should have reading about treasure hunting. <laughs> and so, there's all these treasures. Some of them have been found. Some of them, it's like, that can't possibly be real. Uh, Oak Island in Canada. I don't know if you've seen this. Anybody here interested in, in treasure hunting? I wasn't, but then I started reading all these stories. There's one. It's always been my favorite one I'd seen before. A guy named Forrest Fenn, I don't know if anybody's seen the Forrest Fenn treasure hunt. It was a guy, he was an art collector, and in like 1988, he got cancer, thought he was going to die, and had this aha moment as he was laying in bed thinking that he was going to die. He thought, I, I had so much fun collecting all these art pieces and all these jewels and all this stuff. I'll make a big brass treasure chest, kind of like you see like Goonies or, or you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. I'm going to buy this thing. 
and then I'm going to put all my stuff in it. I'm going to go hide it in Santa Fe, New Mexico. That's where he hid it. And then he, got, he was fine from his cancer, and he never hid the chest until 2010. In 2010, he was like, well, I might as well create an adventure for everybody. He wrote a book. Uh, I can't remember the book. There's something like The Quest or something like that. He wrote this book with a poem in it that had clues on how to find the treasure chest, and then he hid it at an undisclosed time out in the desert. And then it's said that 350,000 people have tried to go and find this treasure. And one time he went on the Today Show and he was talking about it, and the bookstores said that at one point his books were selling about 25 copies a month. And after he went on the Today Show, they started selling 25 copies a minute. It's estimated the treasure was worth between two and five million dollars, diamonds and figurines and different coins and things that were inside that. And I was looking it up this week, and somebody found it in 2020. I didn't say who. That person obviously didn't want to be known. There's 350,000 people out there looking for this thing. But it got me thinking, can you imagine if you had a treasure that was so deep and so rich that, that you could give away life-changing amounts of the wealth that was in that treasure and that you would always have more, like there was no bottom to the pit if you continued to dig into the gold and the diamonds and the, all the stuff and you'd give it. And I'm not just talking about like blessing somebody. I'm talking about you gave it away. It changed their life. But then the more you dug into it, the more you found for yourself. That's what Paul's talking about in this passage with the gospel. He's talking about the gospel when he talks about this mystery. It was previously unknown, hidden from the Gentiles, hidden, but now the riches of Christ, this mystery that we have. He tells us exactly what it is in this passage, verse 27. We've read it three or four times now. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What's the mystery? It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. What does that mean? Well, the way that Christ can be in you is through his death, burial, and resurrection. You place your faith in Christ, he comes to indwell you, Ephesians chapter 1. He's a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. The, the hope, meaning that something that it's not like you wish that it would be true in the Bible. We've talked about this lots of times. We did a whole series on hope. Hope is not a wish. Hope is something that you know to be true. You just haven't experienced it yet. The hope that one day you're going to share with him, participate with him in his glory. That's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the gospel. That's what you have. And so this passage tells us the way that we mature in Christ is repeatedly preaching, teaching the gospel. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so when I say that question, do you repeat the gospel regularly, I don't just mean are you giving gospel presentations to non-believers, although you should be doing that. But you should not just be thinking through the facts of the gospel, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, but the more you preach, it's like digging into that treasure. The more you preach and teach the gospel, the more you begin to see life through the lens of the gospel. And so you start applying it to your own life as a believer too. And so it says here for everyone. And so it's for non-believers. Like think about, we should proclaim the gospel to non-believers across the whole world. But the Bible says the gate is narrow. Few are going to find it. But you found it. You found the treasure. And what you're doing when you proclaim the gospel is going, I know where the treasure, you can have, the The gate is narrow, here's the gate. His name is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the door, he's the gate, he's whatever analogy helps you understand it. And every once in a while, as you're telling people that, proclaiming that, you see a miracle where God transfers somebody from a kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son, Jesus. They're born again, they become a baby in Christ, 
and then you help them grow in their faith. And said, so not only proclaiming, it said, warning. Warning? Yeah, warning, because there's danger. Because everybody who doesn't know Christ is headed towards hell. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to man, and in the end it leads to death. And that's what we see happening in our world. People are walking away from God. They think they're doing the right thing, and you, you have the information. And so, how much do you have to hate people not to warn them? You're headed for just, don't open the door. The plane's going to go down. Don't go over the cliff. There's a, the, 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 the bridge is out ahead. Like, you get warning people, you're headed for destruction. They don't listen to your warning. It's not because you didn't warn them. So we proclaim, and we warn, and we teach. Something to teach. We teach, even for believers. We teach the gospel. So it's not just like bring your unsaved friends, and I'll share the gospel every week, and I, I try to do that, and I hope you will. Bring your unsaved friends, and, and Lord willing, God will do a work and save some of them. But even for you, not just the facts, death, burial, resurrection, but as you think about the cross, and you think about what God is doing, and you think about what that means for you, and you think about what it looks like in light of whatever you're experiencing right now. We talk about suffering today. So you're suffering. There's been suffering. Maybe you're asking tough questions. Maybe your suffering is your fault. Maybe your suffering is persecution. Maybe your suffering is something that you're just, you're a victim. Maybe there's suffering where you've got cancer, like we've mentioned in some stories, and I don't know what your suffering is, but you look at the cross, and then you view your suffering through the lens of the cross. What you see at the cross is God took the worst sin that ever happened, and it was part of His plan. The murder of Jesus on the cross. And He used it for your greatest good. So if that's true, then maybe you can believe Romans 8.28, which seems trite when somebody quotes it to you in your suffering. That God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. That maybe God does have a bigger plan in your suffering, whatever it is, than what you may ever see. And say, oh, no, one day, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you would never understand the billions of things that God's doing through your suffering right now, but as you look at the cross, you can believe that He's doing it. Or, or maybe you're wondering about God's provision in your life or whether you should be generous with other people, and you look at the cross, and you go, He didn't, he didn't spare His own Son, but He gave His own Son for the propitiation, the payment of my sins. Then, then if He can provide for me eternally, then He can provide for me daily. And if he's generous and I'm supposed to put Christ on display through my life, then I should be generous with my time, with my money, with the gifts that God's given me in my ministry. A mature ministry is going to be generous. So you look at the life through the lens of the cross. Do you repeat the gospel to yourself? It changed the way you view much of your life. And we can pick lots of them. Maybe you struggle with sin. And, and you look at the cross, and yeah, it's true. And Hebrews says that we haven't struggled to the point like Jesus did in the garden, to the point of shedding blood. But you look at not only did he die on the cross, but he rose from the dead, and there's victory. And the Bible says that you have the same power that raised Christ from the dead living in you. Do you know what that means for your struggle with sin? It's possible to have victory. So some of you are in that Romans 7. I don't do what I want to do, and then I want to do things, and I don't do those things, and there's this battle, and it's like, I know my desires, but then, and then you keep looking at porn, or you keep lying, or you keep gossiping, and you, and you feel defeated, but then you look at the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. He's given you the Holy Spirit, deposited in you the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Yet we want the fellowship of suffering, yes, but also we want to know the power of the resurrection. Amen? So when you look through the cross, you want to grow in maturity. It's through the proclamation of the gospel, warning of the gospel, 
the teaching of the gospel, and you, keep, you never outgrow the gospel, just so you know, believer. It's not just your ticket to get into heaven. It's the key to your growth and maturity. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Just one more time, I'll read you verse 28. Verse 28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that, here's the reason, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. First question, can you rejoice in your suffering? Second question, do you repeat the gospel regularly? Third question, do you live in community on mission? Do you live on mission in community? Doesn't matter, the order doesn't matter there. And look at the next part of the passage, verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all, not his own energy, God's energy, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So he's never met these people we're going to read in just a minute. When he talks about toiling for them, he's probably praying for them. For I want you to know how great a struggle and striving is the language that's used there. I have for you and for those at Laodicea, not just Colossian Church, but Laodicea Church. So not just Southbridge, but all the churches in the triangle that are, that are preaching the gospel. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments or false teachers. There was lots of false teaching that day, around that time. For though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. Ties back to what we talked about last week when he, we talked about who Jesus is. And if we believe that that's who Jesus is, then we would continue enduring faith. And the language that he uses here when he talks about in verse 29, toiling and striving, struggling, and this energy, and then chapter 2, verse 1, the struggle that he's in, it's athletic language. And so I know today's been a heavier day talking about suffering. And I know that we're kind of in a down season for sports. But I know some of you wear your jerseys regularly. Uh, have different teams. Who are your teams? Tell me who your teams are. You don't care what sport it is. Who we got? Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods. That's your team. That's a one-man team you got there, JP. Yeah, there you go. He is pretty good. That's true. That's true. Who else we got? What do we got? What's that? Was that cricket over there? Was that good eye, mate? What do we got? NC State. Got any Wolfpack fans here today? Oh, we got fingers. We got symbols going on. Any Tar Heels? That's right. They're silently raising their hands. All the Tar Heels are Baptists. All the Wolfpack fans are charismatic, apparently. <laughs> you get your different teams out here. You know, if you've been to a game, if you've been to a game, I don't care if it's hockey, the Hurricanes, or Wolfpack, or whoever it is your team. If you go to a game, I've been to a game before, sit next to people, I don't have any idea who they are. They're wearing the same jerseys, same shirts, all that kind of stuff, and the team scores a touchdown or a basket, and you jump up, you're hugging those people, you're high-fiving those people, you're on the team together with those two. Those are your people in that time. Listen, some of y'all come to church, you don't know who some of the people are that sitting in this room. These are your people. You praying for these people? You're struggling for these people? You care about the growth of the people in your church? That's your team. Your team is the church. And it's not just Southbridge. The goal is not to build up Southbridge so we can have like 10 services or all, whatever the deal would be on that. The goal is that we'd reach the city for Christ. And ultimately, we'd reach the nations for Christ. Amen? But God's put you here at this moment and this time as part of this body with your abilities and mind and experiences and resources to reach this world for Christ. 
And the way that the Bible says that happens is that you experience spiritual transformation that then overflows out of your life for gospel saturation in the world around us. But we do it together. Nobody's supposed to do this on their own. You see what Paul said in this passage? He says, I want you to know that I'm striving for you. I want you to know how much he's praying for these people he's never even met. He hasn't seen them face to face, he says, right in this passage. I want you to know what a great struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face, verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged. Anybody here need encouragement? It's a rough time. Rough time in our world. It can be a rough time to be a Christian. I mean, it's not. We're not getting our heads cut off. But if you read the media, you are the bad people, by the way. You're the problem in our culture. Whether it's your hate because of biblical values about sexuality or whether it's just whatever thing that you can possibly come up with that we can sensationalize, it's some political group that we are rather than actually lovers of Jesus. Like, we can use some encouragement. You know what the Bible says about encouragement? It's part of the role of the church with each other. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Because here's the temptation in our culture, is to either see the darkness that's out there and run to our holy huddle and just hang out with our church friends, or conform to the world and throw Jesus in with it. Neither one of those are a valid option. Because we've been placed here to reach this world for Christ. We do have a place together of encouraging one another, exhorting one another regularly, striving for one another with all of God's energy that He's given us, the power of the resurrection in us to help one another accomplish our ministries, but so that we can reach this world for Christ. And that's what mature Christians do. So are you mature? Can you rejoice in your suffering? Do you repeat the gospel regularly? Are you living like a family with… I'm not asking if you attend a service on Sunday. I can tell that by those of you here. If you're watching online, you're attending a service. But are you connected with these people that you're trying to strive together towards a common goal like a team would do, which we have a goal. It's life change for other people. It's when somebody trusts Christ. Touchdown. That's awesome. Somebody gets baptized. That's amazing. Somebody takes another step of faith. Somebody rejects a sin and starts to walk in holiness. And somebody stops believing lies and starts believing truth. Those are all points on the scoreboard, hugging each other, cheering for one another. What about when there's a defeat? No man or woman left behind. We're in this battle together. That's, you live like that? That's maturity. Now, maybe your answer to the question is, no, I'm not mature. So what do you do? Well, if you're not a Christian, you need to be born again. You need to trust Christ. And we don't expect you to be a mature Christian. We expect you to be a baby, and we're going to teach you how to grow, teach you how to feed yourself, teach you how to walk. Maybe you've been a Christian for some time, and you don't know how to grow. Here's what I would challenge you to do, your step of faith today. Get a mentor. Go to someone who who you look at and say, they've got something spiritually that I want, and say, can we have lunch once a month, once a week, whatever time frame you decide to do, and ask them spiritual questions. Maybe you are spiritually mature. Then who are you mentoring? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we ask that you would encourage hearts. There are some people here with some deep struggles and suffering that's taking place right now. And we're not telling them they need to walk out of here high-fiving everybody because they get to suffer. But God, I pray you would encourage their hearts that they can suffer for you and put your son Jesus Christ on display through their suffering. And Father, I pray for all of us that we would never grow tired or, or, or bored with the gospel. We continue to transform the way that we look at our lives, transform our minds, renew our minds as we hear your gospel. And Father, I pray that we live in community with one another as a church. We wouldn't just be a building that we gather at one day a week, that we would be a family of believers 
that have ministries all throughout the city that we spread out and try and have an impact on the city. And, and Father, I pray if there are people here who don't know you that need to be born again into that family, I pray that right now would be their moment of salvation. And if that's you, you need to place your faith in Jesus. You've been trusting maybe in Jesus plus your church attendance or that you'd be a good person or you'd cut out some bad habit or whatever it is you've come up with that you've trusted in, your own efforts. You'd surrender that to Jesus and you'd trust him to be your savior right now. Confessing your sin, asking Jesus to be your savior, you can do that right now whether you're sitting out of Starbucks or you're in this room. And if you do, after I conclude this prayer, if you would just text the number that we'll put on the screen. And we've got some people that want to give you more information on how to grow in that relationship. And Father, there are people here that have been Christians for a long time, but as Pastor Dave Morley says oftentimes, he says it's possible to grow old in Christ and not grow up in Christ. I pray that today they take a step of faith, uh, reaching out for a mentor. And if you need help finding one, we'd love to do that as your pastors. It's part of our job to help you fulfill the ministry that God has for you. We want to help you do that. And so you can ask us to help you find a good uh, mentor as well. You can also text that number. Just tell them what you're looking for. And Father, there are mature Christians here that uh, it's possible to get in the daily grind or get overwhelmed with what's happening in culture or various different things and to miss the ministry that you have right before our eyes, sometimes in our own home, sometimes with our neighbors. And Father, I pray you'd open our eyes today. Help us to be mature in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.